Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Imagine you're working for a big company, like, say, number seven on the Fortune 500 list. Oh, and it's around the year 2000. There's no Facebook, no Gmail. We're not thinking that much about privacy. And then the company you work for goes bust in spectacular fashion. Well, it was the corporate fraud case that sent shockwaves across Houston and the entire country, the fall of Enron. Congressional hearings begin this morning in the Enron investigation. And then some regulator in Washington releases your work emails, all of them. So all of a sudden, a lot of things in your life just became public. Like? July 28, 1999, 1.42 p.m. Attached are the above reference documents. Hard copies will follow. But also some perhaps less routine business dealings. Subject, re, dark star. To further insulate the Cole Group and you from any claim that Enron misused the information, I suggest that you transfer the information to me, and I will hold it for safekeeping. And some cliché bad workplace behavior. No subject. I'm heading to New Orleans this weekend to do some partying. No Europa, just sluts in the quarter. And let's not forget the classic 90s chain emails. Hope you're having a pleasant first week of 1999. Thought I would forward this on. Top 22 signs that you've had too much of the 90s. 22, cleaning up the dining area means getting... There were even some exchanges with coworkers that really shouldn't have been in your work inbox. No subject. Let me know when you're leaving. I'll be leaving probably in about 30 to 45 minutes. Lock me out. I'll give you a big wet kiss. But I want more. I'll give you all you want. The emails you just heard read by actors are real emails. They're just a few of the hundreds of thousands sent around the year 2000 by some of Enron's highest-ranking employees. And when these emails became public, for the first time, there was a database of thousands of real emails sent by real people that was available to the public and researchers and at least one podcast host. But these emails aren't just a curiosity. They're not just a time capsule. I bet something you use today was touched by these emails. They've become a huge part of all of our lives. From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name. Brands you can trust. Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobkoff. McDonald's Big Mac. Only Starbucks.
Enron collapsed because of greed and corruption and fraud. But the emails Enron employees sent and received have had an astounding afterlife. They were used to create Siri and develop spam filtering and artificial intelligence. They've helped us understand gender and power. But at what cost? What happens when so much of our technology is based on the writings of some fallen energy tycoons? And should the emails have been released in the first place? Stay with us. These days, Enron is pretty much shorthand for corporate scandal. But back in the 90s, Enron was an energy trading company based in Houston. It bought, sold, and traded natural gas and electricity, and also apparently pulp and paper. But the thing Enron is really famous for is how it collapsed. In 2001, it was the biggest bankruptcy ever at that point. It looked suspicious because the company was telling everyone it was profitable and successful. And then out of nowhere, it went bust. The SEC investigated, prosecutors pounced, a number of top executives went to prison for fraud. Guilty verdicts in the biggest case of corporate fraud in history. Lawyers for Jeffrey Skilling and Kenneth Lay threw around complicated notions about margin calls and short selling. But the reason we have access to thousands of Enron's emails is because of something else, something Enron did in California. California became one of the first states to deregulate its energy markets in the mid-90s. The idea was to introduce market forces and competition, you know, lower prices and such. Enron had lobbied hard for this. And then after deregulation came into play, mysteriously, California started experiencing serious energy shortages. And whenever that happened, Enron and some other companies just coincidentally raked in a whole bunch of cash. The worst one was physical withholding. So you just say, I'm not going to run my power plant tomorrow. Pat Wood was an energy regulator with FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. It was his job to help investigate this. Now, no one was dumb enough to say, I'm not going to run it so I can make money off of a scarcity price. But that's what happens. I mean, when you don't run your power plant, which they were obligated to do, Wood says power suppliers would overplay maintenance issues, exaggerate problems so they could shut down their plants. What kind of smart engineer is going to actually go question that? I mean, you, you really got, you know, had to get people under oath to really figure all this out. There were other tricks. Enron would buy power in California, move it to Nevada, and then sell it back at a profit. Enron was making bank, but by the second half of 2000, the tricks turned into a full-on energy crisis. Electricity prices in California shot up 800% at one point. There were rolling blackouts affecting more than a million people. Now, Pat Wood is a free markets guy. He was all for deregulating California's energy market. But what Enron did with that freedom is not what he had in mind when he was promoting free markets. I'm a big passionate defender of competition, but boy, I'm ruthless against people who, you know, want to F it up. So FERC investigated Enron and the market manipulators, and through the investigation, got tons of documents. Like these memos describing in detail how Enron planned to manipulate the California markets to make lots of money. And they they were really pretty shocking. I mean, you know, for one who loves competition in markets, it just kind of made me nauseated because I thought, man, is is this the enterprise that I helped create? 
was this house of cards? I mean, this is this is ridiculous. So I walked down the hall and showed it to my other three commissioners, and I said, you know, I, I got a problem with this. During the investigation, Pat Wood and Ferk were mostly focused on the memos, but they had also gotten a whole lot of emails from Enron. It was huge. It was thousands of, I don't remember if it's terabytes or whatever the word after terror is, but it was huge. So what were you finding in these emails that you wanted people to see? You know, 95% of them were about nothing that we were interested in. But uh, they were, it's hard to read. I mean, it was huge amounts of emails. So the, the other question was, you know, there might be something that somebody finds here from reviewing this stuff that we might have missed. Ferk had to decide what to do with all this data. In 2003, Pat Wood was pissed about what Enron had done, so he kept thinking about transparency. Just put it all out there and let the public see what the company did. But I'm sure behind the scenes, it must have been a hard decision to decide whether to release all these emails with all this personal information and irrelevant Yeah, well, honest, I, will, I will tell you honestly, Dan, the, that issue did not was not front and center as much as I as much as it would be today, for example. So Pat Wood and the FERC commissioners made a fateful decision. They just dumped the entire email archive on the internet. All the Enron emails about gas trading and meeting scheduling, and also the divorces and affairs and talk of parties, it was all there. I've heard different versions of what happened next. Some people say the emails were cleaned up, that someone went through and got rid of social security numbers and bank account info and stuff like that. Other people say Enron employees were actually given a chance to go through and flag things they thought should be redacted. But either way, Pat Wood admits FERC didn't try that hard to clean the emails up. And then after they were public, he just kind of forgot about the emails until I called a few weeks ago. And so what did you think would happen when you put all these emails out in the world? Never dreamed. I mean, when you told me... um when we talked last week, when you told me what had gone on, I mean, I can't tell you how much I've been looking at on on the web since you pointed me in that direction. There is so much on the web about this information. And I, I had no idea what would come of this. The emails took on a life of their own far beyond what anyone at Enron or FERC could have imagined. Artificial intelligence, voice assistance, counterterrorism software, all have roots in the Enron emails. How did that happen? That's in a minute. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. After FERC released the Enron emails back in 2003, I just kind of sat there. Even though they were public, no one was really reading them because they were a mess. Like, imagine you log into your email and you need to find one specific message, except there's no search function. You can't organize by date or sender or subject line. There's spam everywhere. That's what the Enron emails were like. And there were like half a million of them. But this is where the Enron email strange afterlife begins. First, some academics bought the emails from FERC. It became known as the Enron Corpus. Corpus, by the way, is my new favorite word. The Enron Corpus cost 10 grand. Then the researchers got to work cleaning it up, paring it down, and organizing it into something that could be cataloged and searched and studied. And then they went wild. They wrote papers, ran experiments, invented whole new areas of research, like network science. My name is PJ Lamberson, and I'm an assistant professor in the communication department at UCLA. My research focuses on social networks and collaboration. We called PJ Lamberson because he was actually our producer, Sarah Wyman's professor. Yeah, and that is a first day of class I will never forget. What happened? It was just so cool. Like, we all came in, and on the board, he had projected a network that was made up of the Enron emails. And so... What we're looking at is a bunch of dots, basically, arranged in a pattern. And every dot represents an email address in the corpus. And you can tell so much about Enron just from looking at this map, Dan. Like what? Some of the dots are bigger than other dots, which means that they're getting more emails. So are those the powerful people? Yeah. And you can also tell that, like, some people are getting way more emails than they're sending, which is also kind of indicative of them being more important, maybe. But then the really cool thing, like the reason I still remember this class four years after the fact, is that if you like take a step back and just look at the entire network, you see something that's really interesting. What's that? So the way the map is organized, you can see projects because, you know, like people at work will email back and forth when they're working on something. Like we did with this episode. Exactly. But the thing is, at Enron, they were not making podcasts, Dan. (laughs) Some people were actually doing some really sketchy, illegal things. And on this map, you can actually visually see the difference. Like the projects that were totally above board and fine look completely different from the ones that were shady. I guess the way I would describe it, if you look at the network where people are talking about like an illicit or illegal project, it looks like a really tight ball with a few little spikes sticking out of it. And so what that's showing you is that like for those illegal projects, the the communication is really concentrated among a core of individuals and they're not sharing that information or dispersing information about that project with other parts of the organization. Okay, and this is the best part, because a computer has identified this. It's like a magic trick. The computer just has all of the data that's in the corpus that, like, in and of itself doesn't really make any sense to anyone, and it just looks like a huge mess. But then once you run an algorithm on that data— It's like shining a black light on all of the corruption that was happening at Enron. Like you can just see it laid out bare in front of you in this network. Yeah. So this is like 
clearly very useful to people for a lot of things. Yeah. And there is so much cool stuff that's happening with this technology. Like people are using it to predict how viruses spread through populations because the software can identify the people within a group who are most likely to spread something to the rest of the group fast. So like the guy who's just going around shaking lots of people's hands will like show up in this algorithm. Right. But maybe one of the most interesting applications of this technology is that it's actually being used to identify terrorist cells. So like if you have phone records from a group of people, you can run these algorithms on those phone records and they can detect these kind of abnormal patterns of communication And you can see where the terrorist cells are. Okay, so the technology we developed using emails from Enron is now being used to fight terror. Yeah, it's being used for all kinds of stuff. The Enron emails have been a huge opportunity for researchers like Sarah's professor. They're publicly available. There's no copyright. Researchers can swap them between institutions because no one owns them. But they've also been this really big deal for any research or technology that involves language. Because these emails, this corpus, is a rare example of unfiltered, uncensored, totally organic human communication. So the bankruptcy of Enron was really the wonderful stroke of luck for researchers interested in conversation. This is Owen Rambo. He works at an artificial intelligence company called Elemental Cognition, used to teach at Columbia. He's been a part of lots of different research projects involving the Enron emails, and a lot of them involve using the corpus to train computers to understand human language. It's unique. There's nothing quite like it. And it's real. You know, these are real people who are conversing not in order to create data for linguists, but in order to achieve their goals, whatever it was, you know, some work-related goal or just tell each other jokes or, or whatever. Before the Enron emails, researchers like Rambo mostly had to work with stilted conversations or text from old newspapers. One typical example is that people or students are brought into a lab and play a game against each other and engage in conversation as part of the game playing. So they're real conversations, but they're very limited and they're not naturally occurring. But these Enron emails were what people really say to one another, especially when they don't think anyone is reading over their shoulder. And they've taught Rambo and computers a lot about how humans communicate. Like based on syntax and word choice, You can predict if an email sender is male or female, a boss or an underling. Bosses write shorter emails. Male bosses tend to write direct emails like, give me the report by Monday. Female bosses tend to say things like, would you be able to finish the report by Monday? I can say something like, it's hot in here, and it can either be a speech act to inform you of this fact, or it can be a speech act to request of you that you turn on the air conditioning. It is hot in here. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) It's actually okay. (laughs) These are the kinds of problems that cause bugs in artificial intelligence. Machines aren't great at interpreting nuance or tone or intent. They need practice. And the Enron corpus is like one giant perfect training ground for developing those skills. It's helped train spam filters. Hey, the Enron emails had a lot of spam. We can connect you to the world's rich and famous. Capture the attention of millionaires. A unique marketing. The emails played a role in the development of Siri. Google reportedly used them when it was developing Smart Compose in Gmail. If you've used Gmail in the last year or so, you'll know what I'm talking about. This is that thing where it predicts what it thinks you want to say next. 
Sometimes it's actually really helpful. But early versions had this bad habit of suggesting the phrase, I love you, a little too often. If you're a researcher, you could spend hours sifting, organizing, studying these emails, and come to think of them purely as data. And then you might come across one like this. November 26, 2001, 7.23 p.m. No subject. So you were looking for a one-night stand after all? Whoever wrote that email probably didn't want it to have a long legacy. Did you feel any ethical qualms using the Enron emails? I relied on the process having worked. The the process being that people were given the chance to withdraw emails. This said, I had my doubts because in one of the releases, the very first email you saw was a very personal email, which probably the sender didn't, or the receiver more likely, didn't want uh, spread around. A few years ago, Owen Rambo was on a train in Texas. He and his husband were sitting in the dining car. And we started talking to the people who were added to our table, and we're from Houston. And I was working on Enron day in and day out, so I just said, oh, did you work for Enron? Just like that. And the guy said yes. It was kind of like meeting a celebrity. This guy was one of the 150 in the corpus. And that was just sort of such a fascinating, weird coincidence. And it reminded me that this corpus which, you know, we give to our computers and run through algorithms and reduce to numbers and correlations. There really are real people at the other end, and you can meet them in Amtrak trains in Texas. And we then gossiped a little bit about other people who were mentioned in the Enron Corpus, who who sort of almost seemed like uh, people I know. So much of what we know about the world and how it works was somehow learned through this corpus. So much of our technology was developed using the corpus. But Owen Rambo is right. These aren't just data points. These aren't just emails. They're real people. At one energy company, at one period of time, right before it went bust. And that raises all sorts of red flags. That's in a minute. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. There are two really obvious ethical issues with using the Enron emails for anything. First of all, the people who wrote them did not sign up to be part of an academic study. They did not give researchers or robots permission to comb through all of their old conversations. And we'll get to that. 
But first, there's another problem here. The biases of the people writing the emails could become the biases of the AI system that's trained on them. Amanda Lewandowski teaches at NYU and studies how bias creeps into technology. And she's worried that a ton of our artificial intelligence is based at least in part on the emails written by 150 people at an energy company that went bust because of fraud. First of all, they're not geographically representative. A lot of those emails were from people based in the Houston office. It's not going to be representative in terms of corporate culture because it was a Houston-based oil and gas company. And because it's 150 senior executives at this company, you're not going to have the kind of gender or racial diversity that you might expect at a different sort of company. And if you're looking for evidence of this bias, you don't have to look any further than the emails themselves. Like there's this one email chain where someone sends an article about Bill Clinton's dog Buddy getting hit by a car. The Enron official writes back, That is a shame for the dog. I'm very happy about Clinton's grief. There are emails about taking on the World Wildlife Fund. Subject, WWF. Remember, this is the group that publicly announced that Enron has gotten away with murder for years, and we are going to get them. These are the emails underpinning a lot of our artificial intelligence. If there are misogynistic jokes or shows of power in particular emails, those same implicit biases can become encoded in the AI that's trained on that corpus. Computer scientists tend to put this another way. They call it garbage in, garbage out. So who wrote this stuff? I wanted to talk to someone who worked at Enron at the time, who actually wrote some of these emails. All the names are there. And I found that a lot of them list Enron as a former employer on their LinkedIn profiles. So I started calling. And I hit a lot of dead ends. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you have reached While I was searching, though, I met someone else who was obsessed with the emails, a guy named Sam Levine. He's an artist and educator who has used the Enron emails in his own work. And his art deals with these questions. It forces people, like me, to really think about why reading through the corpus makes us feel so uncomfortable. So one of my favorite series of emails to read from the archive is between two people who were married and they both worked at Enron and they're going through a divorce because she cheated on him, I think. And you can like read their whole sort of correspondence. And like, what do you see in these emails? You know, it's stuff like, I saw you today from a distance and like, I thought about what we used to have and I, I'm so sorry and I hope we can be friends again one day, you know, and, you know, stuff like that. Right? Do you feel like you're watching a relationship disintegrate? Yeah. It's also something you shouldn't read, really, you know. It's you invasive. Yeah, I mean, there's something like I feel kind of dirty reading these emails, even though it's so long ago, it's been public for so long. Yeah. And yet it feels like, am I just a voyeur here? It is very voyeuristic. I tried to reach that couple Sam Levine was talking about to ask them how they felt, but I got a voicemail. Hi, Dan Bobkoff calling from Business Insider in New York. Eventually, I reached the guy by email. He said he's not angry about his emails being released, but he didn't want to do an interview. Sam Levine, the artist, has been living with these emails for a few years now. Along with his colleague, Tiga Brain, he used the emails as the basis of an experimental art project. So our project is called The Good Life. And in The Good Life, you get the opportunity to receive all of the emails from the Enron archive 
direct to your inbox in the order that they were originally sent and with the appropriate amount of time between each email. Apparently, a few hundred people have signed up to get their actual inboxes clogged with old Enron emails. Levine even did it himself. Do you have this on your main email account? Yeah. Is that, and it's like not filtered or anything? No, no. So I read every single one. Oh my God. How much time <laughs> do you spend a day on this? Not that long. Because like a lot of them are really short, you know? So I, it doesn't take that long to read all of them. And it's a really interesting experience, I think. Because it's sort of like a lot of times you'll see the email come in and it'll be like meeting in room 10 in 15 minutes. And you're like, oh, oh no. I've missed a meeting. <laughs> I didn't know about that meeting. And then you'll open up the email and you're like, oh, right, right. This happened in 1999, actually. It's okay. I, don't, I didn't actually have to go to that meeting. Ironically, or perhaps fittingly, some of the Enron emails get caught in Levine's spam filters. How do you feel about your emails getting caught in spam filters that might have been trained on the very emails that you were trying to send? I think it's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> it works, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's great. I still wanted to know how it felt to be someone whose emails were released in the corpus, whose every word at Enron is now parsed and dissected by researchers without their consent. Eventually, someone picked up. Hello. Hi. Hi. Is this Mitchell Taylor? Yes. Hi, Dan Bobkoff from Business Insider in New York. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, thank you. So I'm calling you uh, for an interesting reason. Mitch Taylor was a managing director at Enron. He's also the guy Owen Rambo ran into on a train a few years back. Owen Rambo? I had to jog his memory. Oh, 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 oh. What's his last name? Rambo. R-A-M-B-O-W. I do remember this now. (laughs) Okay, so I had him on the phone. This was my big shot. I wanted to know how he felt when all these emails were dumped on the web back in 2003. Yeah, no, you would have thought some uh, privacy uh, advocates would have come to our defense, but at that point, being with Enron, there was no one coming to your defense. Uh, right. No one no one gave a shit at that point. They, they were, you know, they, we were the evil empire, so everyone was happy for any bad things that happened to Enron people, so... He told me that there was so much news about Enron, so much bad press about Enron back then, that the email dump didn't really register. It was just another thing that happened. I've read some of Mitch Taylor's emails, by the way. Most of them sound like work emails. Subject. Re-project granted update. Thanks for the update. With regard to further interference from the PUCN and the comment that the PUCN must approve each generation... You get the idea. I don't think I've ever gone and looked at which ones they had. Uh, I, I certainly didn't have a mistress. I didn't have uh, uh, any um, criminal stuff going on. Now, whether I've passed along an inappropriate joke, I, I may have. It, and I tend to be rather uh, sarcastic at times in emails. That aspect of it has never come back to uh, uh, to bite me in any way, at least that I've seen mm-hmm. or that I'm aware of. When I first heard about this story, I remember thinking how weird and cool it is that the emails from Enron of all companies have been so important in our lives. That the company died, but the emails live on. But the more I dug into it, the weirder I started to feel about the corpus. I really shouldn't be able to read about strangers' divorces and affairs. I shouldn't have access to someone's daycare scheduling, even if it happened two decades ago. But on the other hand, I use Siri, 
I like when Gmail suggests what I was going to say so I don't have to type it out. I think it's nice that some real good and some real human progress came out of the Enron collapse, but at what cost? I really wanted to know what Pat Wood thinks about all this now. After all, he's the guy who released them in the first place back when he was a regulator. And he told me he's lost sleep over it. Well, it was hard because I sat there and go, you know, it was just, um, you know, the impact on, on, now that I've been through privacy breaches on my own, I just thought, man, I was a huge accomplice in doing that to a lot of people, a lot of whom live in the town where I now live. Um, there's probably a lot of people whose privacy is, uh, was impacted significantly by what I did who live in my area code. He said that if he could do it over again, he'd probably release a lot of the emails, but would have taken much more care to scrub out the personal stuff, to protect the people in there who were just collateral damage. What would you say to them? I'm sorry. Uh, you know, if you didn't do anything wrong, you probably don't have anything to be ashamed of. And if you did something wrong, damn it, I got you. But for all those people in the middle who just had a normal expectation of privacy of just kind of their personal affairs, uh, or not personal, their business affairs and how they would be viewed, you know, I think that's, you know, I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't, you know, doing to others as you'd have them doing to you. I wouldn't probably want that done unto me like that. All right, we're not done yet because we had some late-breaking developments as we were reporting this piece. Let's cue the uncut music. We haven't done one of these in a while. As you may know, uncut is the segment where we bring back things that got cut from the episode but we can't stop thinking about. And so I've brought Sarah Wyman. Hello. And Jenny Siegel. Hi. Hi producers of our show, because I have to tell them this story that is that I think is nuts, and I hope they agree. So I couldn't stop thinking about something Mitch Taylor told me when we were talking. And Mitch Taylor was the guy who was in the Enron emails. Hey, now, now and I can't imagine he had ever talked to you, but along this line, a more interesting angle may be what Andy Fastow is doing. So remember, Andy Fastow was Enron's CFO. He's the guy who actually designed and carried out a lot of the ways that Enron hid losses from investors. He actually spent five years in prison. He got out in 2011. And Mitch Taylor told me that he ran into Fastow one day uh, in Texas. and uh, they were does. Right. They were out walking, (laughs) literally. They ran into each other. And he was surprised to hear what Fastow is up to now. And I have to say I was surprised, too. And it brings our story full circle because Andy Fastow is involved in a company that's all about email. What? The irony. Uh, Hi, Dan. Uh, Thanks for having me on your show. My name is Andy Fastow. Um, I am the former CFO of Enron Corp. On the day before deadline, this interview falls into my lap. And so I thought, who better to ask about this than Andy Fastow? So this is his story. Andy Fastow gets out of prison in 2011, and since then, he's been on a kind of apology tour. I consider myself uh, one of the people most responsible for Enron's failure. Uh, I'm ashamed and embarrassed uh, about my role, and um, 
Uh, I believe that what I did was wrong, unethical, and illegal. Uh, and for those I've harmed by my actions at Enron, uh, I apologize. Wow, he was so candid. Whoa. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is sincere, but he's also been trying to rehabilitate his image. And as part of that, for the last few years, he's been giving talks all over the world. And these talks are to, you know, groups of accountants. One time it was to a group of fraud examiners. And in 2016... I was uh, giving a talk in Amsterdam. And um, after my talk, I was approached by two of the founders of KeenCorp. Wait, what's KeenCorp? Yeah, so KeenCorp is this startup from the Netherlands. And back when FastEye was giving this talk... It was developing software that actually scans employee emails. Uh, <laughs> I do not know how I feel about that. Well, okay, hold on. Go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the software is supposed to analyze the mood of companies' employees. They say their whole argument here is that you know you like you give your employees a survey and they might be like everything's great, but in reality they're feeling stressed and tense and uh, they're not really telling you what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And spying on them by reading their email will definitely help with those stressed. Feelings. Yeah, I mean it's like it's a robot reading the emails, but yeah, I hear you. Uh, and so it was working on this artificial intelligence software that would look for subtle changes in tone and word choice that might signal stress or tension inside the company which they say is often a sign of risk to the company. And so if you were developing email scanning software, what might you use to test it? I don't know, maybe... Oh my gosh, the Enron Yeah, I think that's a good idea. That makes sense. (laughs) You are correct. And so that's what they did. And to the developers, it seemed like the software was working. When they scanned the Enron emails from the year 2000, you could actually see this steady increase in tension, as you might expect, as things started to go sour at Enron. But the developers looked a little more closely, and they saw something that was really strange. There was this spike in anxiety way earlier in 1999, and they couldn't find any reason for it. At the time, they were concerned that maybe there was a problem with the algorithm. It turns out the algorithm was spot on. The developers had gone to Fastow's talk, and they'd gone up to him after the talk because they wanted to ask him, what was happening behind the scenes in those days in 1999? So, like, hello, why was everyone so stressed out at Enron exactly. in 1999? And the problem was they couldn't explain why it had happened. And I looked at it, and I asked them the dates of this movement in the data. And these dates corresponded exactly to the approval of the structured finance deal that I put in place that I was responsible for that ultimately became the focus of the Wall Street Journal and the SEC 30 months later. What? Yeah. And, you know, what he says is at the time he wasn't stressed about this. He thought he was doing the right thing. The board approved it unanimously. So you would think they're like totally behind this. But the software had identified that a lot of people who knew about this arrangement were feeling tense about it, even if they weren't saying so publicly. Wow. So it was sort of the technology picked up that something was about to go awry. In retrospect. Yeah. Wow. And so the company KeenCorp had their answer. The software was working. But Andy Fastow is hearing all this, and he's getting really excited about this software because 
He believes if it had existed in 1999 and if Enron had used it, the way things turned out might have been different. If they had seen this data from King Corp the next day, this data that said the top 150 people in the company think this is a terrible decision, but they're not telling you, I believe the board would have reconsidered their decision. And history would have been very different if they had reconsidered that decision because then there would have been no Wall Street Journal article about uh, this deal. Uh, The Wall Street Journal articles triggered the SEC investigation. History would have been much different if this tool had been available in 1999. Wait, but couldn't they also just have, like, not broken the law and history would have been different? Right. Well, his point is that they thought what they were doing was sort of okay. Maybe it just looked bad. Like uh, Jeff Skilling, who was the COO and the president at the time, said that the biggest risk he thought was what he called Wall Street Journal risk, meaning like it's bad for their reputation. It looks shady, but they didn't necessarily think they were breaking the law. So if they'd known that all of their employees were super stressed out about this and unhappy, they might have had like a like a sanity check and been like, oh, maybe we shouldn't. That's what Andy Fastow thinks in 2019. Now, in 1999, even if there were software telling you this, I don't know if I'm convinced that they would be like, actually, on second thought, people are feeling kind of stressed about this. Maybe we should completely change our business plans. (laughs) But, you know, like, this is what Andy believes. And, like, I think he's sincere that he's trying to right some of his wrongs. And his way of, like, one way that he does this is that he actually gets involved with this company, KeenCorp. Wait, are you serious? Yeah. Yes, I invested in the company when I saw what this software can do. I'm committed to using the, uh, the time I have to try to prevent other Enrons from happening. And I should also say that he's a consultant for KeenCorp. <laughs> and I found that really interesting, and I wanted to know how he feels about his life taking this unexpected turn. What do you think about the fact that in the late 90s and early 2000s, you wrote a whole bunch of emails like a lot of people did, and then those emails go on to be used by researchers and people in technology, and then it kind of comes full circle, and now, you know, those emails that you wrote are having this second life, and now you're working with those emails again. Well, I hadn't really thought about that, but look, um, I can't change the legacy I was part of at Enron. I wish I could, but I can't. But if anything good can come out of that legacy, uh, I want to be part of something good that comes out of it. And I really think he believes that this software and working with this company is some kind of redemption. Now, I don't know if I want some software using my emails, like some kind of mood ring. And even Fastow said that at first he thought it was a little minority report-ish. And I can imagine also having Fastow as like your consultant and a sort of spokesperson might turn some companies off. It seems like a weird choice (laughs) for sure. (laughs) But I also can't think of a more fitting ending to this story than Andy Fastow's emails being his legacy in this other way. This episode was produced by a bunch of people who had email addresses in the early 2000s, like musicmunchkin07 at yahoo.com, padulaa at comcast.net, 
and love to swim at verizon.net. That's Sarah Wyman, Amy Padula, Jennifer Siegel, and there's also me. I think I was critical eye at AOL.com for a bit there. Speaking of email, if you're not now afraid of email, we love hearing from you by email. You can write to us at householdname at insider.com or share your thoughts in our Facebook group because there's never, ever been a privacy issue there. Just search for Household Name Podcast. And we have a new issue of our newsletter coming out this week. Subscribe at the link in our show notes. And while you're there, you can also leave us a five-star review and a comment on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to Jessica Lieber, whose piece in the MIT Technology Review actually inspired this episode. William Antonelli, Anthony Boffo, Adam Burkowski, Tyler Chin, Clayton Dyer, Rich Filoni, Ali Guerra, Brett Jordan, Christian Nguyen, Marissa Palmer, Alyssa Powell, and Grace Weinstein were our fine actors reading the Enron emails. Sound design and original music by Casey Holford and John Delore. Our editor is Gianna Palmer. The executive producers are Chris Bannon and me. Household Name is a production of Insider Audio. Stitcher.